And I'm thinking, I'm like, what's going on with this? I ring it again, and no one answers. And I'm thinking, like, okay, now, now this is my time you're wasting, all right? I've already been here a long time. I came early, and now you're not letting me in your house at the right time. This, this is problematic. So I ring it a few more times. I'm frustrated until I had an aha moment. I walked to the car, opened up the front seat, and looked at the address of the house, only to realize I was one house over. I promise you, I bet those people were in their basement looking like, this is awesome, what's this guy doing, right? (laughs) Highly disappointing, extremely frustrating. All that to say, you need to know when you're at the right address in order to maximize your time and maximize the joy of life. And I want to ask you this morning, are you at the right address today? Who's at the right address with us? All right. So when I ask you, are you at the right address, laugh for me. There's more to that story, but I'll share that another time. Yeah, I'm excited to be here with you guys. Last week, as was mentioned, we had a tremendous celebration, uh, celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. And um, man, I hope, I hope that you were encouraged for those of you who are here. For those of you who didn't make it, uh, I know today is going to be an equally encouraging time. I'm just trusting God to do some sweet work in our hearts. In order to start, I want to pray. Just commit this time to the Lord as I open his word. Pray that God's work in our hearts. You guys down with that? All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, I praise you, Lord, for who you are. And I thank you, Lord, for Jesus, our resurrected Savior, your son that you sent on our behalf. Lord, uh, we know life is hard, God. I think all of us have found ourselves in the wrong address at different times doing the wrong thing, putting all our energy into places and things that don't ultimately satisfy. And Lord, we've we've grown frustrated. We're we're tired of placing our focus in the wrong spot. And so Lord, today, we confess we're in the right place. We're here, Lord. We're here. We want you to talk to us. God, we want to put our efforts to living for you. God, I know among us there might be men and women who don't know you, young people who don't know you yet. They're exploring, they're, they're investigating the claims of Christianity. They're trying to see, Lord, if you really are worth it. And Lord, I pray that today and next week and the week after and on and on, where we would see that Jesus is worth it. So Father, I pray you speak to each of our hearts, that you would give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see. And Lord, give me a tongue to speak your word. Lord, even as we're singing, God, I'm reminded, God, that the breaths that I'm breathing right now have been given to me from you. So, Lord, I just don't want to waste them. And so, Lord, bless us as we open your word this morning. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, Jeremy mentioned today we're starting a new series called Unshackled Joy. Man, I'm excited. It's from the book of Philippians in the Bible. That's in the New Testament towards the end of her Bible. And the book of Philippians is a book that's ultimately about joy. I'll talk more about that in a moment, but it's important for us to understand what joy is. There are many different uh, ideas of what it is. In fact, I looked at the Merriam-Webster dictionary. It says, joy is an emotion evoked by well-being, good fortune, or the prospect of possessing what one desires. Joy is an emotion evoked by well-being, good fortune, and by the prospect of possessing what one desires. What strikes me about this definition of joy is that it's contingent on external circumstances, isn't it? 
evoked by well-being, that's an external circumstance, good fortune, or the prospect of possessing what you desire. It's an external idea of joy, which means then your joy is dependent and directly connected to the well-being of your external circumstances. But you and I know that what's externally going on in our world, in our lives, isn't always very joyful. So think about that, though. That means that you are offered joy only when life is good. Only when life is good. Today, what I'm going to share with you is that God offers joy all the time. All the time. Not just when you've got good well-being, not just when you're healthy, not just when things are going well on that bank account, not just when all your dreams are, are being fulfilled and all your desires are taking place. God offers joy when those things aren't happening as well. You guys with me? In fact, uh, one pastor up in Minnesota, he says this, John Piper defines joy, as Christian joy, notice that Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul. It's not external, it's internal. In the soul, produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. It's the good feeling in the soul produced by God the Holy Spirit as he helps us see the beauty of Jesus in the Word, the Bible, and in the world around us. But you notice at the, at the, uh, the central part of this definition is that it is something in the soul that God the Holy Spirit does within us. Which means when your external circumstances stink, the Holy Spirit within can still offer you joy. That's good news for us today, family. As we read the Bible, as we look at the world, sometimes everything in your life might be difficult. There are hardships coming your way left and right, but you step outside and you see the sunshine and the Holy Spirit reminds you that Jesus hung that sun there. It brings you joy within. That's the kind of joy I'm looking for. But notice and John Piper's definition, and what the Bible shares with us, is that joy is a good feeling in the soul. It's a good feeling. It's not an idea. It's not just something that comes to mind. It's, it's something that we feel. But you know this, I know this, that our feelings can come and go, can't they? Which means that God offers joy when life is hard, but you may not experience it. God offers you joy, but it's, it, it may not be experienced. And this is what, what happens. God doesn't promise that it comes easily, instantly, or naturally. Joy does not come easily, instantly, or naturally, especially when life is, life is tough. And you guys know what I'm talking about, which means we need God to apply his joy into our soul. That, that's what this series is about. It's not just that God offers joy, which is great news, but it's that we can actually enjoy his joy as he applies it to us. That's why James can say, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. It's a kind of a contradictory statement in many of our minds, but I get what James is saying. We can have joy in our trials because we know God's at work, even in the middle of that. So what we got to understand is joy and Jesus are inseparable. 
you hear me? True joy and Jesus are inseparable. You can't experience true joy unless you have Jesus. But notice this, joy and adversity are not mutually exclusive. That means you could have joy in the midst of adversity. So today we're going to look at God's formula for this kind of joy, and we're going to find this in the book of Philippians, all right? Would you turn your Bibles and meet me there? It's at the end of your Bible in the New Testament. If someone could take a pew Bible and tell me what page the book of Philippians is on, 980, thank you. Philippians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1, and would you, if you could, stand with me as we read Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and following. I'm only going to read verses 1, or preach verses 1 through 5 today, but I'd like us to read verses 1 through 11 here. This is what Paul writes. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus... To all the saints in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will will bring it into completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. My, my goal today is to give us a, a big picture understanding of this book of Philippians and God's offering of joy. And then, and then we're going to take a glimpse into one segment of that as, as I continue to walk through it. The book of Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul that we were introduced to earlier through our scripture reading. Paul was one man who used to oppose Jesus, be an enemy of God, till Jesus met him on this road and, and revealed himself to him. And after that, Paul's life was rocked. God changes his name from Saul to Paul, and he becomes a missionary, someone who goes about traveling in different cities, telling people about Jesus. He wrote this letter about 25 years after the resurrection of Jesus. So this is pretty, pretty new stuff after the resurrection. And amazingly, he's writing to a city in, called Philippi, which is in the Roman Empire, which tells us, That some 25 years after the resurrection of Jesus already, this good news of Jesus had spread throughout the Roman Empire. That's quick. 25 years without media and television and radio. We're talking people on foot bringing the good news to the extent of the empire. What's interesting, though, is that Paul writes this letter from an unlikely place. He writes it from prison. You notice there in verse 13, he says, talks about his imprisonment for Christ. Paul's basically sitting down 
in a jail cell with a papyrus in his hand and his pen writing this letter to the people in a city called Philippi. Now, now we don't know exactly where he's in jail, but most likely he's in the city of Rome writing this letter. What I find so fascinating, he writes a letter about joy while being chained up. So while physically he is shackled, his joy is unshackled. His circumstances are not dictating the joy in his life. Some of you need to hear this today because your lives have some struggle in it. You're battling illness, perhaps. You're battling loss. You're battling fear. You're battling rebellion in the household. You're battling struggle in the workplace. You're battling all kinds of stuff. Life is hard for you. But your external circumstances, while they may be chained up, your joy doesn't have to be. Paul tells us it doesn't have to be. He writes this from prison. He's not in prison because he he did a petty crime. He's not in prison because he, he had a lapse in his faith and robbed a bank or something like that. He's in prison because of his faith. Because he preached Jesus in the wrong place at the wrong time. And if he's indeed in, Rome, in a Roman prison, that means he was arrested in Israel, sent across the Mediterranean Sea as a prisoner. What Paul reminds us in his letter is that the Christian faith is one that's very countercultural. See, safe Christianity is a sanitized Christianity. There, there's no such thing as a safe Christianity ultimately because it opposes what our hearts, desires, and natures are like. And Paul's experiencing this firsthand. I think in our own country, this is something we've got to grab a better hold of. Um, I've been thinking about this, and, and I want to develop this idea more at a later time. But, but what I see in our country is this, this, this syncretism of the Christian faith and something else. This is what we see throughout our airwaves, throughout television, throughout media. Christianity is becoming increasingly actually popular. It's becoming popularized by our hip-hop artists. It's becoming popularized by even politicians, popularized by entertainers. But the brand of Christianity that's popularized is not really what we're seeing in the Bible. It's a kind of Christianity that, that enjoys certain aspects and ignores other aspects and blends them with, with New Age philosophy or blends them with, with different cultural notions or political ideologies and fuses them together so we see something of Christianity, enough to confuse us, but maybe not enough for us to discern it right away. This is something that alarms me significantly. And I just hope and pray, family, that we would be those who test what we hear. Just because someone says the name of Jesus in a positive manner doesn't mean that they're following him. Just because you might say the name of Jesus in a positive manner doesn't mean that you are necessarily following him. Safe Christianity is a sanitized Christianity. And Paul's saying, hey, it's more than just saying Jesus is good or pray for me. But he put his life on the line. And he writes this letter from a jail cell, though he's shackled, still having unshackled joy. 
The word joy or its word group shows up 16 times in these four chapters. That's pretty significant when you think about it. The word joy or rejoice or rejoice with. (laughs) I mean, look at chapter 1, verse verse 18. He says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I, what? Rejoice. And then what he says, Yes, and I will rejoice. Look at chapter 3, verse 1 with me. He says, Finally, brothers, what? Rejoice in the Lord. And he says, to write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and it's safe for you. He's like, I'm okay if I'm being redundant here. It's okay if you think I'm being repetitive or if I forgot what I said, you know, four paragraphs earlier. Look down chapter 4, verse 4. What does he say? Rejoice in the Lord always. And he's like, and again, I will say, rejoice. <laughs> Paul saying, hey, don't, don't worry about me, man. God's got me. You can have joy still in your circumstances. This is a letter about joy when life doesn't make sense. It's a letter about joy when things are difficult. Joy and Jesus are inseparable. Joy and adversity are not mutually exclusive. But this is not just a letter about joy. It's also a letter about joy now. It's about the joy later. See, Paul tells us in chapter 3, he reminds us, hey, our citizenship isn't here on earth. But we're, we're waiting for a future citizenship on, in heaven. So don't put all your eggs in this basket called United States of America. No, don't put all your eggs in this basket called earth. Recognize your citizenship isn't here. And you might have a citizenship here in this physical place, but this ain't your home. And Paul tells them, hey, that, that, that we, we have a joy that's everlasting, that awaits us in heaven when Jesus, the object of our joy, and the one who creates our joy, is seen face to face. So because of that, though we might be dying, though you may be locked up, though things aren't going well, every step toward heaven is a closer step to joy perfected. So again, I'll say, rejoice. See, see, Paul helps us understand that though you might be fading away in this life, that's reason for joy. Because in the next life is joy unspeakable. We get it backwards. We start putting all our eggs here, investing here, holding on to everything that can give us joy here, and thinking death is the end. Paul says it is the climax of your joy. But it's not just a letter about joy now or joy later, but it's a letter that talks about various other subjects, Paul's a guy who capitalizes on every opportunity he's got. So he sits down and writes a letter. Now, there's a a reason he wrote this, and it's clear in chapter 2. We'll get to that in later weeks. But one of the reasons is that the people in Philippi heard that Paul was in prison, and they were burdened by that. They they loved him, and we'll, we'll see why in a moment. And out of their love for him, they send a guy by the name of Epaphroditus... And they send him to Paul with a financial gift to care for his needs while he's in prison. He couldn't work for himself, but he still had financial burdens while in prison. He's got to eat. He's got to be cared for. And so they send this man named Epaphroditus, but we find out it's on his journey to Paul, the guy gets sick, and he almost dies. And when he arrives to Paul, he had just recovered. And Paul's like, man, I'm so glad you're okay. I'm so glad you're doing well. It took you longer than you expected. 
and I'm going to send you this letter back to you. I'm going to send Timothy with to go back to the Philippians and let them know, hey, Epaphroditus wasn't just dragging his feet for no reason. The guy almost died on this mission. And so he writes this letter to affirm this brother to them. But he also writes to say, thank you. Thanks for caring for me. Though I'm in this prison, though I'm very needy, you went out of your way to love me. And he thanks them for that. But then he also writes his letter to let them know, like, hey, but don't feel bad for me. Because even in prison, God's opening doors for me to tell people about Jesus. I love, I love Paul's perspective. And as he talks about Jesus, this, this book just, it just bursts with a love for Paul's Savior. Man, I, I pray that we would have this kind of love so that no matter what, we say, Jesus, I love you so much. I've got joy in you, even in the midst of all I'm going through. That, that's what the book of Philippians is about. It's about a man in prison writing to people that he loves, encouraging their souls and telling them to press on toward the goal. So we come to chapter 1, verse 1. And Paul writes this letter like he would start any letter. And actually 13 books of the New Testament were letters written by Paul. And he starts the letter like many of us would start a letter. With your name. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a very typical um, first century Greek Roman letter and, uh, beginning. It, it says who's writing it, to whom they're writing it. It gives a quick blessing. But what Paul does, he takes what's a standard kind of letter writing. Like we would say, dear so-and-so, I hope you're doing well. You know, something to that effect. Paul takes it and he adds things to it. He doesn't say, hey, it's Paul and Timothy. I want to say hi to you guys. But he talks about who he is. And he starts out saying, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, some of your Bibles might have a little number one next to that word servant. And if you do have that, it takes you down to a footnote at the bottom of your Bible. And what that footnote will tell you is that the Greek word for servant is doulos, which can be translated servant or slave or bondservant. It's the same word that's used for a slave as we find in other parts of the Bible. Paul is, is here writing saying, hey, me and Timothy are slaves, servants of Jesus. And this obviously is a very radical thing to say. When we think of slavery, we rightly think of the transatlantic slavery uh, here in our nation, in the Western, Western world, which is awful and evil. Or we might think of human trafficking in our current day. And, and this, is, this was a different than those two things, although not altogether different. It was many ways just as an unjust and evil. Now, some tr- slaves were treated well, others were treated poorly. But to unpack that is actually missing the mark. The, the more important thing is saying, why would he use that designation? Why would Paul self-identify as a slave? I mean, think about it. Slaves have no rights. Slaves have a master. Slaves are in a very humbled position because they have nothing to get themselves out of a bad circumstance. Slaves are oftentimes trophies of war. Slaves were purchased. And only in some occasions in the first century, slaves were slaves voluntarily because they were on financially hard times and they had no other recourse. So they figured to be a slave of a wealthy person, at least they'd have lodging and food. Why would Paul call himself a slave 
if that's the image of a slave. Oh boy, what, what image is there, huh? Slaves are purchased. Paul's like, I've been purchased by the blood of Jesus. Slaves were often trophies of war, and Paul says, my Jesus went to battle to save me from sin, death, and Satan. I'm a slave of his. Slaves had the mantra, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Paul says, this is who I am, and I come voluntarily to my master to do his bidding in all things. You think about it, what better term other than say, I'm a slave of Jesus. He's not an abusive taskmaster, but he's a good and loving savior. He's the one who purchased me from the abuse of sin to bring me to new life. He's the one that brings me joy in my shackles. Paul and Timothy, servants, slaves of Christ Jesus. And he says, I'm writing to those who are saints. Saints in Philippi to the overseers and deacons and to all the people there. Now this is another interesting comment. He says that they are saints he's writing to. Now when you think of a saint, you might think of somebody with a halo over their head. You think of somebody that maybe in your previous faith system you prayed to. You think of saints, you don't think of people in the church. And surely many of us, when we think of saints, we don't think of ourselves. And yet Paul here says, hey, from a slave speaking to a saint, I want to say hello. Two words that are very dramatic here. But at the end of the day, what is a saint other than a holy one? And you're like, that doesn't help me because I don't feel very holy. You, you know what's in this heart of mine? You know the words that have exited this mouth, the thoughts in this mind, the life that I've lived? You're calling me a saint, a holy one? Well, that's precisely what Paul wants to get across. If you are a follower of Jesus, we preach this every Sunday, and by God's grace, we will never stop. When Jesus went to the cross, your sin went on Jesus, and Jesus' righteousness went to you. And so when the Father looks at you, he doesn't see your sin and rebellion, though you have sinned and been rebellious, but he sees the perfection of his son Jesus. Yeah. Based on nothing you've done. So when Paul says when the Father looks at you, he sees a saint, a holy one, one who's been set apart. I love that. You may not feel saintly, but you've got to understand that you are one through faith in Jesus when you've believed and repented of your sins. I think the church in America needs to embrace these two titles more aggressively. We are the slaves of one master. We are not a slave to any political party. Christianity is not synonymous with Republican. Christianity is not synonymous with Democrat. Christianity is synonymous with Jesus. We're a slave of him. We're not a slave to whatever class people put you in, whether it's lower, middle, or upper. That's not what you belong to. You belong to Jesus. You're not a slave or belong to your annual income level, your favorite sports team, or your employer. You're a slave of Jesus. I think as we, the church, in these United States, understand our identity, we can take the burdens that God feels for our nation and the people around us 
and have a purified goal in life. It's to live for the Lord. And not only are we slaves, but we're saints. We're people who've been bought with the price and who are declared right before God and now called to live out of our identity as a follower of Jesus. I think when we lose sight of those things, we either live lives that we think don't matter, we don't realize Jesus demands something of us, and that's our life, so this syncretistic Christianity just doesn't fly. Or if we forget we're slaves, we think that we have allegiances elsewhere. We've got to get back to the basics of our faith. In 2008, Starbucks had their former CEO, Howard Schultz, come back to the helm. He had been off for about eight years. He was the CEO or one of the top leaders from 1982 to about 2000. And of course, as we know, during that time, Starbucks became one of the, or not the biggest coffee suppliers in the world. I mean, it was just remarkable the things they were able to do to get people to buy coffee at outrageous prices, which we all do. You know you're guilty. Stop denying it. And around 2008, there was a significant decline over the years beforehand under a different leadership. And when Howard Schultz came back in 2008, he was very adamant. He says, the reason we are are failing now as a company is we've lost sight of our identity. He says, we are now more concerned about expansion than about the customer, yet we've always been first about the customer. And so from that point on, they, they started introducing initiatives that prioritize their customers because it's what worked for them. It's what gave them their initial success. It's who they were from the beginning. Christianity in our country, followers of Jesus must get back to who we were from the beginning. Not the beginning of our nation, but the beginning of the Christian faith in the first century. And we find that instruction from God in his word. We must know who we are, church. If you name the name of Jesus, you are a slave and a saint. This is good news because it's through that identity we can then experience joy in Jesus. And Paul tells them that this is their identity. And then he writes in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He says, I pray for you guys often in every remembrance of you. I'm praying for you, but he says, I do so with thanksgiving. And then what else does he say? He does it with what in verse four? He says he does it with joy. He he prays for the Philippian church. Whenever he thinks of them, he's thankful to God and he's joyful. But then we wonder, why are you so thankful? Why do you have joy when you think about this church? And then he says in verse 5, well, this is why. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul says, I have joy as a slave saint when I remember you because you have partnered with me in the good news of Jesus. I need to unpack this for us. First of all, what is the gospel? He says, your partnership in the gospel gives me joy. Well, the gospel I've already unpacked for you 
is the, the, the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus is that God came down when we couldn't do anything about our sin to save people like you and I. So that when we believe in Jesus, we can be forgiven, declared right before God, adopted into God's family, and given eternal life. This is the good news. And Paul says, I have joy because of your partnership in this good news from the first day until now. The first day he's referring to is the first day they believed in Jesus. If we have time and we don't, but I would turn to Acts chapter 16, when Paul first meets this church in Philippi. See, the reason Paul is so excited about them is there's a story behind the Philippians. Before going to Philippi, he was in a place called Troas in, the, in Asia. And he was trying to discern where God wanted him to go next to start another church. And he tried one place, and he sensed that the Holy Spirit stopped him from going there. And he tried another place, and the Spirit's like, no, not there. And then one night, he went to sleep, and he had a vision of a man from Macedonia coming to him saying, please come to us. He wakes up and says, the Lord has told me that we need to go to Macedonia. He gets in a boat and goes into Macedonia, and he gets into one of the biggest cities in Macedonia called Philippi. He has an affection for these people because he knows God sent him there. He gets there to Philippi, and as he often did, he tried to gather where other Jewish people gathered because they knew about the God of Israel, and there was a natural bridge to the God of the New Testament, the God, uh, Father, Son, and Spirit, the one God of the New Testament, of the Christian faith. And while there by a river, he meets a woman named Lydia. He begins to tell her about Jesus. And Lydia believes in Jesus at that moment. She gets baptized in that river, and then she pleads with Paul and Luke and Silas and says, please, would you guys remain in our household and basically use my home as home base for the mission in this city? Lydia and her hospitality allowed a church to flourish in Philippi. Don't underestimate the power of hospitality. Paul says, I remember that partnership where Lydia opened her home for us. Paul starts preaching. He delivers his girl from, from her physical slavery to these slave owners and from her spiritual slavery to demons. Paul gets arrested for doing it, ends up in prison. He and Silas are in prison. They're singing. God causes an earthquake. The jail cells pop open. The jailer walks up, sees the doors open, pulls out his sword, ready to kill himself, thinking the, the, the prisoners got away. Paul yells out, don't hurt yourself, we're still here. And the man says, sirs, what must we do to be saved? And Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. The man believes, his whole household believes, they get baptized. That's how the church in Philippi starts. So you understand why Paul is thankful when he thinks about them. You understand why he's bursting with joy. He remembers their partnership from the first day. But their partnership wasn't only until, from the first day. He says, also until now. We see in chapter 1, verse 19, that they were praying, they're praying for Paul while he's in prison. We already saw that he gave, they gave financially to Paul while he was in prison. And they continued the work that Paul started in Philippi after he left. And Paul's like, man, I'm just thankful for your partnership in the, in the gospel. What Paul tells us is this, 
Unshackled joy is experienced when we recognize that gospel-driven action and gospel living is cause for joy. He, he sees what they're doing and he's realizing that people are coming to know Jesus, that their eternal lives are being chained, changed, and Paul is having joy because of it. I, I want us to share this same kind of experience, the same kind of joy, family. I, I would love for us, the brook, to understand this. You know, as, as I was reading this, Paul addresses the letter to the overseers and deacons. Those are two kind of leadership roles within the church. But then he says to all the saints in Philippi. He's saying those leaders, yeah, they're leaders in the church, but you are all the church. You're all saints, which means you are all partners in the gospel. One of the burdens we elders and our pastors here at the brook have is we, we want you to understand, Brooke family, that you don't have to be someone who's paid to preach or, 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 or on ministry for a, a living and a calling as I am, for instance, or as Jeremy, Pastor Jeremy is. You, you don't have to do what we're doing to be partners in the gospel. I, I, I need you to understand that. This is so important. You, you can partner with God in this eternal uh, mission, this, this mission that changes people's lives forever. You can partner while you're at your school, while you're in your office, while you're driving from one location to another for work. When you're staying at home and you're rubbing shoulders with your neighbors, you can partner with God on his mission. You just need to understand that. Because the moment we have different, a different tier to Christianity, where the pastors do the ministry, and your job is to bring people to your pastor, that, that, that's, not, that's not what Paul's teaching here. I'm with you guys. We're locking arms. My goal is to empower you to do the work. That's what Paul tells us to do in Ephesians 4. It, it's a role of empowerment. So like Lydia, open your home for people. Have a gospel-driven kind of hospitality where you want to open your, your home and your living room table or dining room table or whatever you have your table is used as a place to love others. Man, I was so encouraged just thinking this past week as we left our real community group on Thursday, and then we, we have our real community in the Belmont Craig and shout out fam. Thank you. And, and as I was leaving, I talked to Carlos and, and Maricel, and I, I said, Carlos, I said, man, your home is home base for mission in this neighborhood. And I just, it just, it excites me. You drive by it, it's a, it's a normal house on the block. But you go inside it, God is using it as a springboard to engage the community. All because they opened their front door. And many others are doing the same thing, whether it's for real community or in other ways. Family, that's cause for joy. They prayed for Paul in his imprisonment. And that's cause for joy gospel-driven prayer warriors. There's some of you that God has just given you a burden to pray, and maybe, maybe you have not pursued that gift. Everyone's called to pray, but there's a, there's a kind of intercessory prayer gift. Cultivate that thing. Embrace a prayer burden for the good news of Jesus to be saturating what you're praying for whether it be situations in our country, whether it be the race relationship in our country, be burdened by it and pray for the good news of Jesus to saturate that. 
be burdened by our local mission fields, whether it's the ESL class or Bell Park or Steinmetz or the youth in our community. Be burdened and just pray for it. We need some more of that. They were generous for Paul. They, they, they helped his financial needs. God may be calling some of you to experience unshackled joy through your giving. Through your giving. Bless somebody who you know is struggling. Buy them a grocery. Maybe offer free child care. Help them out. Pay a bill. Or, or give to a missionary. Or give, even give more to the mission here. Just use your finances to advance God's mission and watch the Lord fill you with joy. Or lastly, as they were doing in Philippi, they were saturating their city with the good news of Jesus. We need to get out there, family, and experience the joy of telling someone about the love of God through Jesus. This is what Paul says this. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy. Paul's like, I'm joyful praying for you because I've seen the way you've partnered. And we experience that same kind of joy, that longevity in our, in our lives. Paul's bursting with joy as he prays. We know what it's like to burst with joy when things are in our minds, certain things that give us joy whenever you talk about them. I get a lot of joy when I talk about October of 2005. I love thinking about it. It's when the White Sox won their World Series in four games. I, I talk about that. You see me smile. It's reason for joy. And something else happened a couple other years ago, similar, but I don't, I don't remember the details. But, but there are things in your life that whenever you talk about them, they bring you joy. But there are also things in your life that... that that bring you joy, but you become so familiar with them, you, you don't, you, you're not as joyful as you once were. And familiarity has a way of doing that. But don't let familiarity with the gospel produce indifference toward the gospel. Paul sees the good news of Jesus going forward, and they're partnering with Jesus in his mission, and that brings him joy. So don't ever become so familiar with this good news that it, it, it is no longer joyful for you. The fact that God left his eternal throne to save you. That he was born in a stable in Bethlehem, raised in the remote village of Nazareth, hang and hung on a lonely wooden cross on Calvary. He was placed in a borrowed tomb in Jerusalem and at the crack of dawn on Sunday, rose, defeating sin, death, and Satan. That's good news. That's reason for joy, if you believe. And as you reflect on that truth, and you see that good news spread, it brings you unshackled joy. Church family, as we sit here today on the cusp of this series, I, I want us to understand that we are slave saints, doing God's work, doing the, 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 the mission of our master Jesus, but also realizing that in doing that is when we experience life to the fullest and experience his joy. If you come today and you're looking for that, you've been at the wrong address all your life. You've been putting a lot of energy in the wrong places. Know 
That joy comes when you say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Help me live for you. I turn from it. I'm living for you. Bless me. That's, that's, that's where joy happens through Jesus. Church family, joy and Jesus are inseparable. And so let's walk with him. Let's experience what he's offering. And let's get down doing his work as slave saints together, all right? Father in heaven, we praise you uh, for this, this, this morning. And um, I'm just thankful for the example of Paul locked in a dungeon, locked in chains, and saying, God, you, you are still good. Lord, thank you that our external circumstances don't dictate what the Christian life ought to be like. And so, God, I pray that for every brother and sister here today, um, as we come to you, Lord, the joy that you offer may be applied to their heart as they look to this good news of Jesus. May they love it, may they treasure it, may they cherish it. And count all things as rubbish in comparison. Lord, for those who are fighting today for joy and are not, not experiencing, they're, they're struggling because of all kinds of things. May they, Lord, rest in you. May, may, may they, Lord, know that you are with them. And may they hold fast to the good news, Lord, that you offer through Jesus. We love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand up, family. Prayer team, would you come forward?